0: I wonder if I might hunt for sherds in your garden. Sherds? Well, I have an archaeological interest. I'm a student of that, in my own time. Old things generally. You're listening to Sherds Podcast, a journey through the outskirts of literature.
1: much as she had been hoping otherwise, Rebecca Linka's furtive birthday began with exactly what she had expected. Nothing. What if nothing happens? She asked herself. I don't care if it's good or bad, so as long as it's something. Her mistake had been to invest her hopes in a crucial event occurring at an arbitrary point in time when what needed to happen would inevitably be a flush in the dark, an unexpected ambush that catches you unawares during an otherwise ordinary situation. But then the fateful day came, just a dull summer yawn, as unremarkable as any other. Rebecca looked at it over her shoulder in the mirror, a beautiful day behind a beautiful face, both lacking the qualities that make things memorable.
0: That was the opening paragraph of The Naked Woman by Armonía Somers, which was originally published in Spanish in 1950. The translation was made by Kit Maud, and the book is published by the Feminist Press. On her 30th birthday, the main character of The Naked Woman, Rebecca Linka, undergoes a violent physical and mental transformation. She leaves her home in only an overcoat and wanders through the local forests and fields. When she spotted in broad daylight, divested of her clothes, the event sends tremors through the rural village, penetrating the hearts, bodies and minds of its inhabitants. Some view her as the return of Eve, some as a malignant curse. In either case, the village must confront this happening and undergo its own transformation. Join us over the next hour while we discuss this outstanding example of transgressive fiction from Latin America. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to episode twenty-seven of Shirts Podcast. My name's Sam Pullum. I'm here with Rob Prowse. How are you doing, man?
2: Uh, yeah, very well. Glad to be back, 2020. Nice to see everything's uh, still here and still going. So yeah.
0: <laughs> reality hasn't gone and didn't disappear.
2: Well, yeah, exactly. You never know. You know, wake up one day and everything's just disappeared.
0: <laughs> are you? <laughs> <laughs> Are you you're sticking with 2020 then, Rob? Or are you not going to switch to 2020? Oh, going to go yeah. old old school.
2: Yeah, maybe seeing as everything is still here, we can make some changes now. So yeah, <laughs> 20, 2020 perhaps. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Today we're talking about the naked woman by Armonia Sommers. I'm not i Sp- I'm not a Spanish speaker. Somers? I don't know how you would say that, Rob.
2: Yeah, I think that sounds about right. I mean. I guess the thing is, this pen name is a kind of deliberate, anglicised name, so it's quite difficult to imagine. You know, maybe we should be saying, like... Summers. Ar- Armonia Summers.
0: <laughs> Armonia Summers, let's say. How did you feel about reading this one, Rob? Did you enjoy it?
2: I I really, really enjoyed it, yeah. Not something I'd heard of before, and it was a fun trip to the bookshop to go and pick up my copy of uh, The Naked Woman.
0: Uh, did you find this one in the bookshop?
2: Well, I, I ordered it in, um, and it was just a funny conversation over the phone yeah the bookseller didn't know what this was. In fact, it's like a, a really phenomenal piece of feminist fiction, but it could have been something else entirely. Um, yeah, almost as as soon as I started reading it, I thought it was it was absolutely fantastic, and I enjoyed it right to the end. And I've kind of been recommending it to all sorts of people since. So yeah, really, really kind of blew me away. I was very into it. What about you?
0: Yeah, I was really into this one too. It's nice to finally get round to it actually, because I'd heard about it quite a while ago, or well, over a year ago or something from the translator of it, from Kit Maud. Just randomly, really. We we follow one another on Instagram and he, he used to post about it quite a lot when it came out. So I'd always wanted to get hold of a copy. And I, I had no idea what to expect, really, from this one. Uruguayan literature is very much uncharted territory for me you know i'm familiar with some south american literature but it's my first encounter with writer from uruguay yeah immediately after reading the first few pages i I knew i was in for something really unique and certainly something challenging would you consider it a challenging book rob
2: yeah certainly in some ways i mean the, the beginning of the book certainly doesn't make it easy for the reader and I think you know you were you were sort of a day's reading ahead of me or something and I remember you saying to me that you know persevere at the beginning because it it does get easier and it wasn't I wasn't enjoying it but yeah it's uh, stylistically a challenge at the beginning and then that kind of eases off a little bit. Elements of it are challenging and certainly intellectually probably quite challenging.
0: It's something that you settle into and it starts as something quite oblique and elliptical you know and it's it's sort of demanding in the way that lots of modernist novels are but that eventually you you grow accustomed to the style and it it even i think quite distinctly simplifies as it goes on there are still moments of of real strangeness or, or confusion i heard this Critic Angel Rama talking about Summers having a Baroque style. At times, it does really, it does feel very lyrical. So I enjoyed that aspect of it. Interestingly, she also called her the most unusual prose writer that the history of our literature has ever known. And there is something just quite alien and, and unique about the style here. I think.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah certainly. I mean, there's a. Uh... I don't quite know what the right word is, like multifaceted, but I Hmm. really mean multi-voiced. And I'm sure there is a word for that, but I, I can't think
0: of it. Polyphonic?
2: Yeah, maybe polyphonic is a good way of describing it. I mean, I know the kind of background reading that when it first came out, people thought it may have been written by more than one person. Mm. And I can understand why people might have thought that. It's not that there's not a stylistic coherence. I think it does fit together. But something about the kind of abrupt shifts that can make it quite strange to read. I've not read anything quite like that.
0: I certainly think that it sort of contracts and dilates in terms of density, just in terms of... The, the density of Im- imagery or the obscurity of description sometimes that really intensifies and that's particularly apparent at the beginning of the book but then it seems really coherent throughout for, for me so i don't really see it as like polyphonic or polysty you know an example of polystylism but it does have many moods it's like a high poetic style sometimes and then there's a violence and an urgency to it and also moments of real humor as well eroticism, so it runs a whole gamut of emotions, I suppose. In that sense, it's quite varied, but, yeah, purely in terms of style, I'm not so sure. But it's interesting to hear that.
2: Yeah, I mean, perhaps moods is is a better way of thinking of it. I was just very interested in... in Reading this idea that people originally thought it might have been written by more than one author.
0: So the book is published in 1950. It feels like it could be quite a transgressive book for this period, especially written by a female author.
2: Yeah. I guess there's something in the setting which is so almost a kind of folk tale mm. that it's not of any particular time. I don't know. I don't know if this is over the top, but I think if this was published today I don't think anyone would think it anachronistic my copy has got a quote on the front from Carmen Maria Mercado and I've read some of her work and I think there's there's really massive similarities with some of her shorter stories so yeah to to imagine what this what this would have felt like to read in 1950 I can't quite imagine certainly transgressive
0: there is a kind of timelessness to it I think it doesn't isn't feel particularly like it's set in any particular time. It feels like the rural community where most of it takes place is, I don't know, in some sense outside of any historical reality. Yeah. From my perspective. I mean, I'm sure it's not the case for people who are, you know are reading this in Uruguay. Maybe there are specific things that I'm I'm missing. But no, it certainly has this detached quality from my perspective but I can imagine that the response to it upon its publication in in 1950 might have been slightly scandalous.
2: Yeah absolutely.
0: I just want to say something about the translation we were both really impressed with it as is more than evident by this stage neither of us are Spanish speakers even though I should be since it's my (laughs) mother's first language she would be very upset to hear me (laughs) mispronouncing all these (laughs) all these names but it's incredibly fluent isn't it and very expressive and quite beautiful at times i think so i was i was really impressed with it and particularly after hearing about the book from kit Maud, i was very pleased to to find that we also heard a little bit from kit Maud and his encounter with armonia summers yeah let's let's hear from him now
3: Hello, I'm Kit Maud, the translator of The Naked Woman, or La Mujer Desnuda, by Armonia Summers. I'd like to start by thanking Sam and Rob for inviting me to do this, and more importantly, for picking this book to be included in their fantastic series. The breadth of reading you guys choose, the the books you choose, they're just fantastic, and I I very much enjoy listening to to what you have to say. And I'm very interested to hear what uh, you guys have to say about this book. Now you asked me to talk a little bit about the importance of Armonia Summers in Latin American literature, but that's actually kind of a tricky thing to do because I, I think the best way to describe her reputation and influence or her importance is almost as an importance in potentia because she's an extremely well-known writer in um, Latin American literary circles, but she's not necessarily an extremely well-read writer. I discovered this myself when I first came across it because I started, this This book's translation came about several years ago, um, or it began several years ago, when an editor in the US asked me to recommend some women writers who would fall into a kind of modern classic territory, who were writing in the 20th century, um, but who hadn't yet been translated. So I asked around, and a lot of people mentioned Armonia Summers, a lot. And so I, I went out and I bought the first book I found, and it was called La Mujer Desnuda, The Naked Woman. I thought, well, people are going to remember the title, if nothing else. And I started reading and my first reaction was, this is so weird. How, what, what on earth is she talking about? Um, so I, I went and, and talked and wrote an email and, and spoke to the friends who had recommended her. And I said, oh, no, we haven't read her. And, and this is this is sort of a theme. She is To describe her as a a cult writer would be almost an exaggeration because a cult implies some kind of organisation and and following, whereas the experience for those of us who love Armonia is very much more of an individual one. Once she gets under your skin, I mean, she stays there, but a lot of readers are just as likely as she said once in an interview to to want to throw her books out the window. Of course I'm here to ask you uh, not to do that but um, rather to to, to let her get under your skin, because once she does, it's such a rewarding, wonderful experience. But getting back to her importance, I think that, I mean, I would say this, but I think that she's just about to become very important in Latin American literature, and and hopefully uh, to some extent in English as well, because a lot of her themes feel extraordinarily contemporary to me. I mean, there's the subversiveness. There's a fierce feminism that underlies everything she does. But there's also... A sense of irreverence. Irreverence towards the things she's subverting, for sure. The patriarchy, the church, the state, uh, men to, to a great extent, and also prudishness. She has absolutely no time for repression in any way, shape or form. Life is there to be enjoyed, sex especially is there to be enjoyed, and anyone who tries to tell you otherwise isn't going to get much shrift from her. But she's also irreverent on a more basic level to things like sentence structure and grammar and, and her reader. She, I mean, she, she really doesn't give the reader much help in the way Way she writes. She sort of rambles on and jumps from one topic to another, from one time to another, from one character to another. And you're always you're always feeling a little bit like you're playing catch-up, that you have to concentrate hard to to keep up, which also makes uh, translating her not, not necessarily the, the easiest thing in the world. But I think that irreverence is really very contemporary. I'm seeing writers these days, all the, from all across the world, in, in Spanish especially, beginning to write like this. Now, she was doing this 70 years before, uh, before they were doing it. Um, but I, I get the feeling that this is really her time to be read and, and, and enjoyed and properly understood. So it's it's really exciting to be able to, to share her work in English. And I think that's true on the academic side as well. I think she was overlooked for a long time by the Academy. Very few, There's very little sort of literature about it, but... Right, but now essays are popping up. The first book of critical work on Armonia Summers is, I think, is about to be published or has just been published, which is why I get the feeling that in 10 years' time, we're going to be talking a lot more about writers who, are, who have been influenced by Armonia Summers. Or oh, that's my fervent hope, at least. But I've, uh, speaking of rambling, I've rambled on long enough, so I'd like to say thanks again to Sam and Rob for covering The Naked Woman. I'm very excited to, to hear what you have to say about it.
0: have some information about Armonia summers his life Rob
2: yes yeah indeed so yeah if you if you think we were struggling to say the uh, anglicized pen name I'm gonna butcher the the real one I'm afraid uh-huh. but, um, born born in uh, 1914 real name Armonia L'Europea ecipare Now no, I'm just pronouncing that with a kind of Italian accent um, <laughs> but you get the idea yeah she's the eldest of three daughters and her father was an anarchist businessman i don't know seems like it might be a contradiction in terms but Mm. pedro and her deeply catholic mother maria judith locino and apparently she was um the only girl admitted to her primary school so obviously kind of like very academic from a from a young age. She studied pedagogy at the University of the Republic and she finished that course in 1933 and she kind of moves into education and I think it's it's really important to say here that actually as well as being an author, an extremely accomplished author who's kind of recognised in her lifetime, she's kind of something of like a big deal in the world of pedagogy Mm. if you kind of have a brief glance over the the wikipedia there's actually far more about the things that she's done in that part of her life almost than than the novels that she's written right yeah Uh, it's very interesting but yeah so she's uh she teaches in various different schools in the 30s and she publishes essays through the 40s and 50s winning awards and these are all essays about education and kind of like education in different environments so in schools and in prisons and very other things and in 1950 so the year that this book is published she was sent as the delegate of the pedagogical museum of montevideo to attend the inter-american seminar on primary education and seemingly off the back of this she was then invited by the government of france to collaborate with the french prison system to be a, a kind of consultant on education within the french prison system oh wow kind of kind of amazing and also she publishes this book yeah uh, so she's really obviously incredibly prolific and i don't quite understand where she finds the time to do to, to kind of lead this almost double life yeah so she she travels as as this kind of like role as the the delegate for this museum to the United States and to UNESCO and she's appointed the deputy director of this museum in the 50s and it's um around this point that she also meets her husband who's Rodolfo henestrossa who is publisher of one of her novels and they marry a couple of years after he publishes one of her works so Summers is often kind of grouped with this group of Uruguayan writers known to the Generation of '45, who are authors who come onto the literary scene in the late '30s, continue writing right up until the military dictatorship, which happens um, comes to power in the, in 1973. This movement is defined by a desire to kind of like build a modern. Uruguayan style. To resist conformity in style offer of new and critical intellectual perspectives. And they're kind of like, for the most part, realists and very much of the left. Now I think Somers didn't really like the fact that she was kind of lumped in with this and I think, you know, this book is many things, but it's certainly not a realist novel. So you can kind of understand why she may not have enjoyed being considered to be part of that particular movement. She certainly kind of like finds a very distinct voice, I think. But she's also part of this group of Uruguayan women who are pushing... Pushing the boundaries of literature at the time. Perhaps people that are interesting for this podcast at a future date, who I don't really know much about Christina perry Rossi, who was exiled from Uruguay for her writing, and Clara Silva. But she did have very big supporters within Uruguay of her work, despite perhaps being slightly outside of the kind of mainstream literary scene. Angel Rama, as you've already mentioned, is a really big supporter. And as you've already said, described her work as some of the the most unusual narratives in our literary history. And then, yeah, she, she kind of continues her, her kind of like educational work. She becomes the director for the National Centre of Education Documentation and, uh, receives a UNESCO follow, Fellowship for this role. But in the 60s, sort of mid-60s, she stops teaching and devotes herself to to writing despite this there are some really kind of like long pauses in her output there's not a huge number of novels and there's there's periods Mm. kind of like entire decades really like 1953 to 63 and then later in 69 to 78 where there's there's just nothing but she did continue publishing right up until her death in 1994
1: the head rolled heavily like a fruit Rebecca Linka watched it fall impassively, feeling neither joy nor sorrow. This marked the beginning of a new state of being, no more than a black strip frozen definitively in time. Was it possible that the moving world had been resolved just like that with a single thrust? The headless woman lay on the dark carpet, stretched out nightmarishly and her final act. There could be, there very well may be, a dimension in time for such things, but it offered little room for conjecture. Once the throat had been severed, all questions came to an end. Anyone who has ever lost a limb knows that on occasion, for a few brief, titillating seconds, you feel as though it has returned. The sensation is very convincing. This is how she felt still precariously placed in her memoryless trip. Or maybe her head, the one she didn't have, was sprouting again, easily, naturally, like a kind of poppy seed. She felt a slight buzzing inside of her, just a pregnant glimmer, but it was the only sign of life that she could have possibly hoped for. After an incalculable period of time, deep elemental impulses began to reappear. One foot twitched, then the whole body jerked upright, and just like that, the black strip was tamed and the first stage was over. Now she was able to find her erstwhile head and take it in her hands. She rocked it gently as she walked, testing the weight of her burden. She was still unable to move in a set direction or keep her balance. An inner growth, like the first swelling of milk, was taking possession of her. But that wasn't all. In her deepest, most intimate core, an awareness of guilt started to manifest itself. She had spilled the sadness onto the earth. This head without a pedestal was her doing. The woman could not yet do anything but the simplest acts, but she tried and succeeded in performing a series of movements. She picked up a handkerchief and placed it with a free hand under the head, fastening it at the bottom. This was more than necessary. Blood was falling from the circular wound like rain. Then the savage little statue shimmered back into reality, and the true nature of her crime was revealed but Rebecca Linke would never again try to balance out the two contradictory halves of herself. The only evidence of the poppy seed inside her was a muffled vegetable rattle, like hail hitting a windowpane. Although she was incapable of stringing together complex thoughts, she must have realized that this placid state could no longer be sustained. She was beholden to the present like water held in the palm of a hand. Quickly placing the head on top of something, She stepped back to observe the effect in the darkness. The amputated body part continued to mutate, now adopting a stubborn disposition. Seen from a new perspective, the woman decided that she liked this version better than the little effigy of the peasant woman with its round, protruding tongue. fierce and angry from her chin to her eyebrows, temples and hair. She regarded the incredible metamorphoses of the bodiless doll as a challenge. A strange, equivocal feeling came over her. She knelt down until she was at the same level as the head. Amanda, I want to kiss you, she murmured. But she was unable to consummate the act. As in a nightmare, the unreality of her mouth made it impossible. Suddenly, she saw in horror that the head was still bleeding, the gaunt, pale face hunkering for its blood. It was now paramount that she restored the natural order of things. She had to bring her thoughts back to the top and reconstruct the real universe with its stars above and ground below. She had to rewrite the primordial plan. In one graceful movement, the decapitated woman picked up her old hat and shoved it on like a helmet. The unfamiliar weight made her sway for a moment. It was difficult, annoying, to have to look at the world through eyes. She was trapped in an attic, where things in their images scratched pitilessly, at the innocent air clamouring for their rightful places. Fortunately, the two flows of sap combined easily, far more quickly than would ordinarily happen in a grafted plant. All fixed. The woman ran her thumbs around her neck, where the wound had started to burn like a red-hot wire, but this was nothing compared to the urgency of her new vigil. She stumbled around, surveying the room. In fact, the anemic head seemed changed, quite different. But what did that matter? A subtle feeling of happiness was distorting her ability to make the comparison. Finally, her hand, which was being unusually slow, managed to get the door open. It had struggled with the handle for an age. Out in the field, the woman's night, the first night she had ever truly owned, began.
0: Yeah, one of the most ar- arresting things about the book for me is this very early portion of it where we encounter a scene of self decapitation or auto decapitation described in quite an ob- oblique manner, but that appears to be what what's going on. I-, I wonder what you made of that of that scene, Rob. What did you think upon sort of opening the book and this is the first event? Is this Auto-decapitation.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I think stylistically it certainly throws you in at the deep end. And then to suddenly find yourself in this uh, strange dreamscape where you're not entirely sure what's going on, whether whether this is real, whether it's kind of like very symbolic. It's interesting of course that the knife that is perhaps used or not used uh, decapitation is, is kind of being used as a bookmark or as uh, inside a book I definitely thought of it straight away as some symbolic removal of you know, whether it was kind of like rationality or uh, some kind of like break with our previous perceptions or something.
0: I certainly think it's, it's the case that it, it feels Feels like um, a separation from her former self so the, the book opens and we're told that the protagonist uh, Rebecca Linker is turning 30 and then Im- immediately this we're given this strange scene in which she, she appears to behead herself with a dagger and certainly it feels like perhaps the intention is for us to view it as as metaphorical or perhaps even there are sort of aspects of magical realism here. Like you, I thought I thought it was intriguing that you know it's the seat of the of the intellectual in a human being, you know, the head that is amputated, and then the body, uh, specifically the body, afterwards becomes e- essentialized. And in quite specific terms, you know, it's curious that after that point, and correct me if I'm wrong, she's not referred to as Rebecca anymore. She's becomes known simply as the woman or or the naked woman. And I kind of read this as that character relinquishing the the role ascribed to women. The socialized woman becomes this sort of pure expression of femininity that is simultaneously dangerous and alluring, and that that no one has, (laughs) that no one seemingly in the the rest of the novel has any real idea how to, to understand. And that's certainly the case, isn't it, Rob? that uh, as this naked woman emerges one one day within the village, she just essentially sort of wreaks havoc within within the mind and souls of of anyone who encounters her or even hears about her so there's a, there's a real threat to the female body specifically, isn't there the essentialized female body there for society
2: yeah, it's interesting, I think that in this in this short section that the head is removed and then kind of put back yeah i guess the kind of like agency of the putting back the fact that that's a deliberate effort means that perhaps everything is somehow changed it's somehow on her terms yeah i think it even says like rebecca would never again try to balance out the two contradictory halves of herself there's something that happens there in this initial, you know, it's obviously so important for what it's set up that it's at this point that she then steps out into the into the world, and I think it's even described as, yeah, it's just, you know, she, when she steps out after this decapitation and this recapitation, I don't know, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that she she steps out into into the woman's night, the first night she had ever truly owned.
0: That'll be the the subtitle of this this episode, Rob. The, yeah. the <laughs> recapitation. <laughs> in The Naked Woman. No, I think ap- absolutely that's that's crucial. I was looking at an article, I say looking at because the article was in Spanish um, and it's by Nadina Ol- Olmedo called Gótico y Género, El Viaje Decapitado de la mujer desnuda. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think gothic, the gothic and gender, the decapitated journey of the naked woman. And I, I had a look at this with the little, with the aid of some electronic translation. And this article reads the novel through the lens of the gothic tradition, particularly as it reads it against a tradition of, sort of patriarchal gothic, in which the female body is mutilated or strangled or mistreated in various ways, and. And this writer is claiming precisely the the same thing as you that uh you know she argues that it's really significant that in this case it's the woman who performs the de- decapitation and that there's a expression of pure autonomy in that and she places her head back on her own shoulders. If we look at the way that that's described, it's written this way in one graceful movement, the decapitated woman picked up her old head and shoved it on like a helmet and it was interesting to me that this military simile would be used you know suggestive of a sort of combative attitude on her part or at least a kind of defensive one for sure and just to continue that this idea of the of the gothic that that writer claims that by doing this that she inverts the trend of previous gothic novels by male authors in which male characters show a clear obsession with the with female necks that they finally strangled and you know that the the neck is associated with vampirism as well and that summers is kind of altering the the order of the male gothic since the woman takes control and performs it herself also like you said the way that she escapes is curious there or the way that she exits that room anyway we've seen it described as almost prison-like right the light coming through the blinds i think compared to bars right uh, on on the window. Uh, yeah, okay. And yeah, so it says once she's got the 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 head on, she stumbled round surveying the room. In fact, the anemic head seemed changed, quite different. But what did that matter? A subtle feeling of happiness was distorting her ability to make the comparison. Finally, her, her hand managed to get the door open. It had struggled with the handle for an age. So there's a really strong sense of both relinquishing her former sense and maybe the sort of rational conception of femininity but also this larger escape from from the domestic space you know from socialization and out into the forest or out into this rural landscape yes i thought it was interesting that yeah olmedo that writer associates the house very directly with with society yeah the way that things happen to the to the body and the bodies of various characters and the way they transform are fascinating throughout the book, I think.
2: It's something I hadn't actually thought about when I read it, but that moment where it says the hand had been fumbling for an age, I hadn't really thought about perhaps what's happening at that very point is, is twofold, where this kind of like new head has introduced a, some kind of new rationality or like a, certainly a break with the previous intellectual life, but also there's a new engagement with the body to the extent that actually even simple tasks are very difficult and that perhaps what we see as it goes on, is a kind of learning of the body and a kind of like a feeling. And it's, um you know, even in this, the kind of like the first walk, but continues right through, there is some very small elements of a uh, physical pain mm. that she kind of brings upon herself as she kind of moves through. And it, at certain points, that is just the very, the practicality of um, being naked. Yeah. Even she talks about having thorns in her feet, yeah, getting scratched by branches and things like this. And in one way, kind of made me think of the kind of like imagery of the of the kind of martyrs but actually i, I don't really think that's what's being pursued here or i assume it isn't anyway because of i don't think we're, we're sort of meant to see this this woman who's just now become as as a martyr
0: no although she kind of becomes something like that for others at times but i think you're right yeah
2: yeah and so i guess. Maybe I would think of it more as a some kind of like a, a trial. or oh, sorry, she's trialling in terms of what she's trying things out in terms of this newfound tuning in to the, the feelings of the body and what, what she experiences. And so descriptions of kind of like walking across a field strewn with, with thorns and things are actually mm. very beautiful. And so it, it kind of shifts it away from being like a arduous thing to really just maybe feeling some of these things for the first time
0: but also if we can think about that that description of the head being returned like a helmet that there's something soldierly about it yeah these are battle wounds that, that is quite sort of triumphant that nothing is going to stop her she's certainly never described as weak or timid at any point she seems to have a sort of mythical strength a spiritual strength
1: By now, the alarm had been raised throughout the village nearby. The high-pitched, hysterical squeals of the twin brothers were drowned out by the voices of the local residents, whose doors all opened at once as though blown out by a supernatural earthquake. The houses were not large, despite their conventional little gardens, with customary single tree in front and their naive checkerboard layout, they weren't entirely lacking in charm. The entire village seemed to have come into being, all at once, to meet a collective need that had no time for the niceties of urban planning. Beyond were the fields of labor, which had a somewhat picture-postcard look. Behind were the cowsheds, a major part of the lives of each family group. The distinctive smell of the village emanated from them, a compelling cloud of maternity, milk, straw and manure. Nearby, separated by a rarely used path, the main street to the train station led everywhere, were neglected vegetable gardens. They had belonged to a previous generation of settlers, whose fate was a mystery. The new arrivals had allowed them to run wild, unable to decide whether to turn over for grazing or tend them. Maybe they were keeping them in reserve for future municipal growth. It was in this very ordinary place, where the only things that ever happened were the milking of cows the delivery of pails of milk to the milk train, the sowing of crops, the act of marriage, and the bearing of children who would grow up to do exactly the same ordinary things, which also included going to church on Sunday, dying and passing on one's surname, that the first thing of consequence they had ever experienced beyond their poverty of spirit occurred. The news borne by the twins began to spread.
0: What do you think of what she inspires in in others? She's spotted in the village.
2: The first, the first meeting is the the twins, who are described as perhaps not necessarily the most intelligent. I guess I'm trying to imagine what it, it would really be like to, to yeah. some, <laughs> come across someone in a, in a field. Yeah, I mean the the initial reaction from those who actually do see her, and I guess right up until the end of the book, very few people really do see her. Yeah, it's a kind of an awe that seems almost like it couldn't be generated purely by what they were really seeing it's kind of like a ecstatic vision or something and certainly certainly fear i suppose
0: we see her inspire f- of course like sexual desire and awe and fear also violence the confrontation of even this very idea of the appearance of this of the naked woman yeah. causes this Sort of animalistic side to come out in a number of male characters to the, to the point where we even see a sort of rape one of the male characters rape, oh, yeah, rapes no. his wife because he's so because his blood has run so hot with this vision but I thought that the fact that it turns to either of those two poles you know idealisation or fear and confusion uh, was really interesting and I thought that maybe in the priest the most interesting example
1: is to be found The priest was pale. He, too, was consumed by the vulgar sweats of the flesh, the sweat of a difficult night when sleep only makes things worse. An eerie light, like a child's nightlight, emanated from his face. He had meekly allowed himself to be pulled into this strange new territory, the scent of which was unfamiliar, but then again his sense of smell didn't seem to be working very well anyway. He didn't know whether to breathe it in or out, but eventually found himself forced to savour the aroma. He and the terrible nightflower perfume were alone, floating in the bizarre world, with no prospect of returning to the depressing little room next to the chapel. The small gaunt man was still growing accustomed to the semi-lunar twilight of sleep. But the naked woman was too bright for the shadows to swallow her entirely. Her body glowed like a mother of pearl in the dark seabed. Madame, he murmured, trying to break the spell. Then she stepped forward, brighter than ever. She is a torch of burning roses, he thought. But what roses? Roses that can whisper secrets, secrets that God doesn't want you to know. She seemed to be saying in her brave but gentle feminine way. It's me, I am standing before your lean face and white forehead. It's too big for the little head you've been given. Give me that head burning on its own like a flower in the desert. This is a night for two, give it to me. The man suddenly saw his own hand floating in the oppressive air of the room, then multiplied like ripples in water. But what was left of his decapitated body couldn't get a hold of any of them, as much as he chased madly around. Eventually, he picked up a butterfly net that he hadn't seen or used since childhood, and started to trash about with it wildly. But the infernal little heads bounced about until they were well up in the sky, and from there they looked down upon him with his own eyes, regressing back into the sweet gaze of a being's first moments in life. Around, among, and against them danced thousands of transparent, overlapping colored circles. I just want one of my heads, the priest begged desperately, a dog howling at the moon. The image of the woman, though faint, never faded away completely from the sea of cloned heads and circles.
0: I I thought it was interesting that in the priest's encounter with the naked woman, we also get a kind of decapitation, right, Uh, of sorts, a sort of weird psychedelic visionary decapitation but nevertheless that the imagery is very very similar there's this section when the we're told that the, the priest is having difficulty sleeping after hearing about the appearance of this this naked woman and it says the priest was pale he too was consumed by the vulgar sweats of the flesh the sweat of a difficult night when sleep only makes things worse in the night he's Visited by the apparition of the naked woman, and and he kind of I- idealizes her in this erotic manner, which is described as a torch of burning roses and roses that can whisper s- secrets, secrets that God doesn't want you to know. So she inspires this sort of blasphemous uh, eroticism in him. But then we have this weird decapitation. So obviously there's there's humour here as well. But I, th- I thought it was really curious in terms of what the, the that the critic who placed this in the tradition of the gothic had said viewing the auto decapitation as an expression of autonomy and this is one which places a male figure in a Position of powerlessness and infantilizes him, causes him to regress through childhood and even to sort of pre-verbal state, and he he kind of kind of looks quite pathetic, I suppose. It's possible to view this again as the inability of the patriarchal view to rationalize feminine autonomy. You know, the the intellect once again has to be relinquished or, or forcibly severed, and it kind of feels like. A free expression of the erotic from a feminine perspective has to contain something violent and and forceful.
2: Yeah, that's that's really amazing. I just hadn't made the connection between the two decapitations, but yeah, I think it's it's absolutely kind of on the money what you've what you've just said there. The, the kind of differing reactions to that moment, you know, whatever the kind of multitude of things that this decapitation can represent, but um, certainly it seems it seems very clear the one who kind of sets out kind of tentatively, but somehow talks about setting out into the night with ownership and this is a kind of hallucinatory terror. And that perhaps, you know, that with the woman, she undergoes this decapitation to then find some kind of wholeness. Whereas the male character is left in this kind of like shattered existence, like begging for like one element of the previous self. Yeah. The priest is in fact in the the same section where Mm. he says he's shattered into little pieces each of which seemed to contain some aspect of his character. However, because of the lack of full support, the whole, none were able to find purchase independently of one another. The implication is that perhaps this, yeah, like a kind of certain patriarchal worldview is so um, so embedded in the kind of mindset of the men that we encounter here, that it kind of becomes impossible for them to kind of witness this woman and everything she represents and, and to remain whole. But I think it's interesting that none of the men really, none of the men really seem to come to any kind of um, conclusion or or peace with with what happens in the book. No. Whether whether the woman does is also another question, but it's interesting. I don't think there's any kind of resolution that ever happens with the with the male characters.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely true. They're either left sexual, uh, sexually. <laughs> Sexually, <laughs> they're either <laughs> le- <laughs> they're either left sexually frustrated, spiritually broken, confused, devoured by love, and then and conquered to some degree. No, absolutely, they are broken by her presence i would say interestingly i i I found this little quotation from Armonia summers in women's voices from latin america and she says uh, about asked about eroticism she says well eroticism is a reality i don't mean to say that i treat it with contempt but rather naturally however destruction is something else again one destroys in order to swallow up another person Love is ravishing the other in order to incorporate him into oneself. We don't devour the male the way the female spider does after copulating, but in both men and women, a destructive element is present in love, destruction in order to take possession. And I wonder if we're seeing something like that in the way that the male characters respond to the presence of the of the naked woman. I suppose... Depends upon whether we see her as something. I mean, I certainly did. But do do you accept that there is a a distinctly erotic element in in her character? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the very first interaction she has with someone in the village is this kind of like whispering into the ear of the of the woodsman. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that's right. Yeah, uh, drives drives him mad, and then leads to the the kind of rape that he mentioned earlier her actions and her words in fact perhaps her her words are even more kind of erotically charged than just the sight of her because mm. in truth the twins when they see her body run away and then it's the imagination of her that is really the the kind of like erotic the the kind of like physically erotic element and the reaction i think to her when when she's finally seen again is almost to be kind of dumbstruck by the fact that there is this kind of flesh and blood naked woman and it's it's actually one of the, the least erotic elements mm. and that it's far more the, the imagination of her spurred on by her words i suppose
0: yeah but but certainly there is a kind of essential er, erot, eroticism to her and it's just interesting that that's always coupled with some form of destruction you know even leading to the mm. final moments of of the novel yes i yeah I see what you mean, yeah. yeah and how much of that is a part of the sort of erroneous response to her is debatable but it certainly exists there i think
2: and i think it's very it's interesting in terms of the reaction to her it certainly seems it's not didactic i suppose in its um there's a there's an awful lot of room for interpretation of how complicit she is in some of the reaction. And it's what makes it so interesting, I suppose, that for me anyway, there's this huge undercurrent of female desire that makes elements of this make so much sense only when kind of viewed through that lens because there are certain bits of this where it almost seems like, I am not want <laughs> to say that it's, that it's uh, her fault but that there's strange choices being made but they're only strange if we think of her as somehow you know we kind of project onto this like weird moral purity yeah it also is perhaps the view of her that's taken by the priest this hallucinatory dream is, is it was given to us in in the context of the priest being a, a painter who was kind of saved from a childhood illness and so was given to the church as a kind of thank you but perhaps always has had this uh, painter's eye or like a, a kind of like a certain aesthetic sensibility mm. and unlike many of the other male characters whose response is a kind of like lustful violence his response also perhaps does a different kind of violence in that he sees the naked woman as the kind of appearance of the feminine ideal this uh, kind of like pure Womanhood, which of course is in some way supposedly elevating her to a almost godlike status, but in another way it raises well
1: any of her desire for a yeah, start yeah. and any of any of her
2: feelings so yeah, I think this is um for me one of the one of the most interesting bits she's kind of fallible in her eroticism outside of the eroticism which is kind of projected onto her or the idea of her.
1: The woman does not and has never existed. At least not for anyone who is not as clean as she. She exists only for those who are worthy of touching her. Which is to say that she does not exist at all. Yes, don't make those worried faces, on my account. I haven't gone mad. Eve, as I explained to you, was thrown out of paradise because of the fruit. But wherefore all this shame and fear of the eye of God, with its clear waters and the fathomless beauty? That, as strange as it may seem is what I ask you today. She has returned, that is all, because she now knows that God wanted her to eat the fruit. The naked woman is passing through the village, seeking to appeal her judgment, and she mocks you and your poor feminine other halves, you who are so primly attired but incapable of eternal love. Oh, she is more than a woman, and she may well dazzle us with her game, but what is the point of trying to share the scent of this rose the first flesh rose to walk the earth with the likes of you? The priest's words were smothered in a wave of coughing and creaking joints, but not his poetry, which remained suspended in the air like a trapeze artist over a safety net. For the first time, she, the woman, had been mentioned and named. She was initially linked to a biblical myth, then hell in a manner bordering on heresy. Now she could be seen in thousands of different forms, Depending on the image each carried inside of them, her shape had been as vague as a sliver of the moon in the daylight, but no longer. Given form by the priest's words, and what words they were, the femme fatale hardened in each incarnation of her spell, bathing them in the breath of truth, perfuming their faces with her hair, scratching every palm of her nails. The priest, meanwhile, had paused once again, ostensibly to clear his throat. But as he pretended to be lost in thought, he surveyed the congregation and gauged their reaction. I say she does not exist, his voice taking on a prophetic timbre.
0: It is true that he idealizes her and um, characterizes her with this purity. He gives her a kind of innocence uh, that is too pure for his congregation right he sort of chastises his congregation for the way that they sexualize her even though he is guilty of of doing that himself we've already learned that about him and that does seem to make her sort of devoid of of desire from the outside but i, I also thought it was curious that she calls herself eve mm. towards the beginning of the text i think this is when she appears in the home of is it the woodsman is that where she appears yes yeah 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 so she does call herself Eve but among those names that she applies to herself and there are quite a few of them uh, is the name Judith as well that's someone who's come up in our podcast before when we talked about the very first book we looked at Rob Flower Phantoms oh
2: yeah of course
0: yeah Judith is an apocryphal book in the in the bible and she's a character who beheads Holofernes She's associated with trickery and betrayal of, of men and also unattainability. So she, she is a character who remains unmarried for the rest of her days after decapitating, <laughs> yeah, uh, interestingly, this character yeah. Holofernes. So that's, a, that's another sort of resonance with decapitation there. And it seems to me that it's it's this part, not just desire, but it's this violent, aggressive Uh, triumphant aspect of her character that he refuses to to see you know and it's it's also striking i suppose that this instance of feminine power is kind of written out of the bible you know or it's not included with within it uh, that it's an apocryphal text i'm sure a biblical scholar could tell me more specifically why but yeah she's associated with quite a number of female figures in the bible i've heard people talk about her as a, a figure like Lilith—is that even mentioned in the in the afterword, Rob?
2: Oh, I don't know. Yeah, because it's not in the text, is it? No. It's, um It may well be, but I can't remember. There's
0: there's also an echo of Lot's wife mm-hmm. towards the end of the book. So we have this scene, the sort of dénouement of the of the book, the conflagration of the church. We have this passage: bathed in a reddish glow, she looked up at the sky, a pomegranate sliced in half. She looked behind her, and what she saw might have turned her into a pillar of salt or granite. The church had become a flaming skeleton you know this is This is a reference to to lot 's wife when she 's given the command not to look back when she flees the city of Sodom. She disobeys and is punished by being turned into a, a pillar of salt so there are all these instances of i suppose disobedience es- essentially. Mm that don't find their way into the priest's conception of her, um, but are are absolutely there in the text.
2: And also just uh, physicality, I suppose. Mm. Um, You know, when he tells his congregation that she doesn't exist, I think perhaps it has something to do with the idea of this kind of aesthetic ideal has has no kind of like physical manifestation. Mm. And it comes to a head when after this uh, blood and thunder type sermon that he gives... And then this at the very end of that, a woman starts screaming and he assumes that she's giving birth. Mm. And he he says, disgusting woman coming into the house of God to give birth. This kind of like a total disdain for um, the female body and the things that, you know, like absolutely specific to the female body. Yeah.
0: And he just sort of wanders off. Down the pulpit, yeah, and like into his office, right. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, pretty damning, isn't it?
2: To return to the to the names you just said, it's re- like really, really interesting. I think in terms of these names that she gives herself, I guess perhaps a little bit like the placing of her own head back onto her body. This um, this ability to take on many names and look really interesting uh, and often kind of like overlooked these these kind of figures that are maybe not always seen as powerful figures she kind of invests them within the context of the story with a new power or maybe suggests something that we haven't quite thought about that but i was also really struck i read um there's a really interesting article in this kind of like online journal called three percent which is from the university of rochester but talks a little bit about this naming and the the really interesting thing i got from that was it spoke about as well as the specifics of the name being really interesting the inability for any of the characters to give her a name because she has described herself variously of all these names Mm. and the power that comes with being able to name something that she is taking away. So she's kind of giving that power to herself by bestowing her own names, but also she's removing the power from these male characters to give her a name
0: Mm, that's very interesting in a sort of adamic sense isn't it yeah
2: yeah yeah yeah, exactly the kind of like reversal of the the idea of adam and
0: eve that that comes in here to sort of reclaim from adam the very notion of naming and how that functions in terms of possession and self-possession specifically in, in this instance
2: in this final part of the book where where she meets Juan and they have this kind of intense, seeming like five-minute love affair where they, uh, they fall kind of madly in love very, very quickly. He, he seems to undergo some kind of strange awakening, but it's very difficult to understand, like, the motivation or uh, what exactly makes him different from any of the other men. And one part of this, I suppose, my way of trying to think of it was through this idea of female desire. Because the first living being that the naked woman encounters is, in fact, the horse. I'm sort of slightly loath to make the connection between femininity and the animal, because mm. uh, I think that's quite problematic, but she empathises with the kind of, like, horse's downtrodden existence and uh, takes off some of the kind of harness that it's wearing mm. and notices this wound. There is a kind of weirdly, like a, a completely different type of eroticization that goes on here, where I don't know if this is... To contemporary reading, but it struck me that the importance given to this wound perhaps had a link with female genitalia, mm. and it's kind of going on there, and that... Um the naked woman, as an act of care, puts her lips to the to the horse's wound mm-hmm. to kind of heal it. And actually, this is to return to where we were. This this is echoed in Juan's actions towards the the woman after he suggests that he's got some cream that he uses on the children, and um, you know. He's kind of the same thing, you know, the, the conflation of femininity and, and the animal. There's also obviously a classic conflation of uh, femininity and, and childhood. So he kind of falls into what he describes himself as a trap, but then his next action is is to parallel her interaction with the horse, mm. and he puts his lips to the injured area. It's it's referred to here. Mm. It's this wholeheartedly reenacting an ancient, violent, savage ritual. And I was wondering whether we could um, actually as with anything in this book it's not explicit that what's going on is really what's going on and actually are we witnessing a kind of sexual act and a sexual act focused on female pleasure and whether that was some element of what was what going on at the end of the, the book and perhaps what makes one slightly different.
0: Yeah, how many sherds would you give this book, Rob?
2: God, it's really hard, isn't it? Can't just give everything really high ratings. I think I've said I think I've given something else than nine and a half shirts mm. because I I'm just you know, I wanna keep that, that extra half sherd in reserve just in case. Yeah. <laughs> But I think this is this has really got to be a, a nine and a half as well because I was just completely blown away by it. I think it's it's really fantastic and I've enjoyed talking about it so much. And a hundred percent, it's going to be something that I return to. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's it for me. Um, what what about you? Yeah,
0: sim- similar impression to you. I think more than any book that we've read together for this show, I found this one kind of confounding. In a really strong way. I feel like not only do I want to return to it, but I I have to return to this and uh, give it a a second and more um, and hopefully a, a deeper reading. But I know that that will be a really pleasurable thing to do. I enjoyed it so much, absolutely. I'm going to give it a nine as well. So I'm also really intrigued to read more of her work. And luckily, Kit Maud is translating a, a second novel at the moment, or is finished translating it. That's amazing. Yeah, it's great. It's 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 called Only Elephants Find Mantrake, uh, which is quite a cryptic little title, isn't it? Um, yeah. But it's going to be from the same... From the same publisher, from Feminist Press, and it will come out in 2021. So a little while to wait, but certainly I'm going to be reading that one too. Yeah, absolutely loved reading reading this. Highly recommended.
2: And yeah, that's that's such that's really good news about the the next one. Yeah, because I must admit, the only thing that I sort of felt disappointing at all about the book was that I couldn't read more. <laughs> uh, yeah. And um, yeah, because am I right in thinking this is the only? one of hers in translation.
0: I'm pretty sure. There, there might be short stories in, in anthologies, but I think this is the uh, okay. only novel that is available. Yeah,
2: so yeah, really fantastic to have uh, another one to read.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sherd's Podcast. If you have any questions or comments about our conversation, please write to us at sherdspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps our visibility. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.